welcome to the Hand in Hand Show. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcasts. This is Cam, your host. Today, we're here with Elise, who is an occupational therapist from Chattanooga, Tennessee. She worked as a travel therapist across the country before returning home in 2019 to take a home health care position. Since she started working, she's recognized that the U.S. healthcare system is broken. She's seen and heard time and again from survivors that they don't get the education, quantity, or quality of therapy they need. Unfortunately, Elisa's perspective was further validated when her grandmother had a TIA in October of 2019. The personal experience of seeing her grandmother in the hospital with a TIA opened her eyes to the extreme trauma a survivor and their family endures. And Elise was extremely frustrated with the lack of education and lack of high-quality therapy provided to her grandmother after she was discharged from the hospital. This started to turn the gears in Elise's mind. Then the pandemic ramped up mid-March, and she quit her stable home health care job to start a holistic teletherapy practice designed specifically for stroke survivors. Her goal was and is to provide not only direct one-on-one care, but also to develop resources for survivors regardless of insurance status. Elise is extremely passionate about her work and advocating for the needs of stroke survivors. Hello, Elise. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, as a therapist, sometimes people go into the therapy field because they've had experiences before with with family members, with friends. Um, that had not been my case. I just, you know, my, my thought was, oh, I would really love to get into something where I can help people and really enjoy my job. So that's why I chose therapy in the first place. You know, I got to see things primarily from the standpoint uh, as a rehab therapist. And I hadn't been through the firsthand experience of what it's like prior to the point of getting into therapy and what all that entailed. I definitely empathized with what people would tell me, but it's a very different perspective having someone you love go through something as traumatic as a stroke and you're seeing that personally and firsthand. It's actually my grandmother-in-law, but I just, she's like my own grandmother. So I, I will just call her grandmother, my nanny. We're very close. Yeah. So she lives up in a rural, you know, I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is Southeast Tennessee for anyone who doesn't know. And so she lives kind of out in the boonies in the rural area, about a 45 minute drive from where I live. And yeah, her daughter, my mother-in-law, they're like next door neighbors. She, my mother-in-law had called her in the morning just to see how she was doing. And her speech was slurred. She just wasn't sounding quite herself. It scared her. And so they ended up taking her to the hospital. Uh, They took her to one of the rural hospitals and then ended up transporting her to one of the main stroke centers closer into town for our Southeast region in Tennessee. When we got there, you know, I, my husband and I got there while she, she had just been brought into the emergency room. She was so confused. So her TIA presented with expressive aphasia, 
And in the very beginning, she had a very hard time also comprehending what was going on. Um, but she she could not get out her words. Her words were very jumbled. Anything that was coming out wasn't really making sense. And so what I saw just waiting in the emergency room was just complete terror. And she did not understand what was going on. The blood pressure cuff, you know, everything they have, they're monitoring all of your vitals in the emergency room. So all the beeping noises are going off. The blood pressure cuff is going on, you know, every 15 minutes. And every time that would go off, she was just scared beyond belief and didn't really, she couldn't comprehend what was going on. Every noise was scaring her. You can't sleep in an emergency room and you're so tired. You're so tired. This and she had gotten there like early evening, so it was getting on into the into the night. Seeing how traumatic that was, not only for her, not only for her family, because what also got brought to the forefront of my mind is uh, so many people don't have family or friends either there or available to be with them while they're going through something like this. Well, and, and now you can't be with them. Yes. You can't a lot of times you can't even get into the emergency room to wait. You have to wait in your car, you have to, you know, whatever they do. Yeah, so it's even it's it's 10 times as scary. Yes. Absolutely. And and you don't have someone there to if you don't have someone there to advocate for you and what you need. Like we were I was that super annoying family member who was like, okay, so when are we going to get a room? Because she can't sleep. Things are very uncomfortable for her. And I didn't care because I wanted her to get what she needed. So I was that, the nurses probably did not like me, but that's okay. But yeah, when you either don't have someone around or you can't have someone there for you and you can't speak. So yes, that experience completely shifted my perspective and that's kind of what started opening my eyes to how could I create change? How can change happen? And which I believe our healthcare system is broken. And I don't speak from a political viewpoint, just a someone who's worked in it, had issues getting certain types of care myself, friends and family having issues getting types of care that they need. So it kind of started in my gears thinking, okay, how, how do we change this? What can we do? <laughs> A lot of people on here know my story that, you know, I had my stroke eight and a half years ago and I really didn't have an advocate. I was a single parent. My parents were more elderly and they believe doctors know best and never ask questions. I did have a friend who at the rehab hospital would come and stay a lot and she would ask questions and she'd go read and everything. But I mean, she never told therapists not to do something or to do something more, but she educated herself, which at least she did that, but she still mm -hmm. didn't know what to expect because she was not in the healthcare system. What is, what does holistic medicine mean? So I think this question will, will, follow kind of your train of thought there really well, because what I wanted to talk about kind of under this branch of holistic therapy, but I mean, thinking about the whole person, thinking about not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, how do these traumatic events, especially like a stroke, impact somebody and what does that therapy look like when you're addressing all of those factors and not just physical rehab? 
But before I kind of get onto that, I want to go back to what you were talking about before the the quantity of therapy, which I think falls under holistic therapy, because if you don't get as much therapy as you need, then how are you supposed to get holistic therapy anyway, right? How are you supposed to just generally get the amount of therapy you need to, to make the progress that you need to make? Quality, the quality of therapy is huge as well. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that you know, you made a really good point that I think that you were very lucky to get six week, six weeks in an inpatient rehab hospital that a lot of people, like you said, get a week or two weeks and then they get sent home and they might get home health. They might get outpatient. They might be sent to a skilled nursing facility, just depending on kind of what level they're at, but they might not. Or like you've mentioned, they may only be qualified to receive 20 visits. And then it's like, so it's not even about individually looking at where someone is at and possibly thinking, yeah, you know what? This person's actually doing really well. They may only need 10 visits or this person needs a lot more than 20 visits. We're going to have to really ramp this up. Um, So instead of taking an individual viewpoint, it's just this blanket statement of, you, everyone gets 20 visits. You get 20 visits. You get 20 visits. It's insurance is Oprah for outpatient therapy visits. Mm -hmm. You know, it's disheartening. And like you said, you have to fight with these companies. You have to, you have to have, you know, work alongside your therapist so that one, you're saying the right things. Like you said, you know, I'm not safe. That's Mm -hmm. always a big one. So you, anybody can always use that one. If you're not safe, in your own home, you know, and you're still having falls at home, that's something that they're going to be like, oh, okay, well, we'll make sure we give them a couple extra visits. Well, and from the insurance perspective, because they're a money-making business in this country, unfortunately, they think, well, if people are still falling, they're going to have to go back to the hospital if they get hurt and when they fall, and we're going to have to pay for that. But also quality of therapy, I think, is huge. I I would venture to guess that most inpatient rehab hospitals have pretty darn good programs. You know, that's what they're focused on. But in other settings, as someone who has worked in skilled nursing facilities, in home health care, I did um, some of my internships in outpatient. I don't know if a lot of the people that we work with understand that we have these crazy productivity requirements Mm -hmm. as therapists. And for example, when I was working in skilled nursing facilities, they would have productivity requirements set for therapists between 85 and 90%. And what that like means kind of in a day-to-day schedule is that it's not even about productivity. It's about billable time. So 85 to 90% of the eight to 10 hours that you're working has to be billable time. People who are outside of the therapy realm probably don't know, but providing family education, if the, the person, the patient is not present, is not considered billable. So if you're trying to educate family, like if you need to call the family and let them know, hey, we're recommending X, Y, and Z. That doesn't count towards billable time. 
taking someone from their room to the therapy gym if they're not actively involved and and maybe they're not able to be maybe they're still at you know kind of a uh, in a wheelchair and they're not able to walk down there themselves but that's something you're working on but um that's not billable time there are all and, and I understand why because Medicare wants to prevent you know, fraudulent billing, of course. And that's important because we we don't need to be abusing the system. It, Medicare billing and reimbursement was changed because, you know, 25, 30 years ago, there were therapists who were unfortunately, you know, doing fraudulent billing. But when you think about that, if 90% of your day is bill, has to be billable, that doesn't include paperwork. Right. That, that, you know, it's just, so you, you know, if someone has ever been in a skilled nursing facility and your therapist is trying to do paperwork while they're working with you, I don't see it as an excuse because I still think that the therapist should still be working one-on-one with you. Um, but it just makes it so difficult. So the quality of therapy suffers under these restraints. So even though you might want to try to do your best, it's still just, it's such a struggle when you're limited in these systems. And it's just not set up in a way that benefits either the therapist or the person who's receiving the therapy. I will fast forward a little bit to talk more about that um, holistic therapy. Like I was saying, the umbrella. So not only the quality and the quantity of therapy you're getting, but also, you know, what are we talking about in therapy? It's, it's so important to definitely focus on those physical rehabilitation needs. Cause if you're having trouble walking or you're having trouble moving your arm and your hand, it's hard to think about other things sometimes because that's just so prevalent and it's right there or speech issues. But I think the focus on mental and emotional health also needs to be at the forefront of rehab um, because it it's a completely traumatic event. It's stressful. It's you're now in a rehab hospital. You're away from home. You're away from your family and friends. You're going through this really difficult time and transition in your life. And it's just, there needs to be more support for mental health, for sleep and for fatigue, the, all of those aspects as well. And well, yeah. yeah. And those are huge, as you know, reading through the Facebook groups that you're on probably and that mm-hmm. I'm on, they don't understand the fatigue. They don't understand why their hand isn't better in a couple of weeks. They don't, there's, there's just so much. Uh, and I guess part of that is education. Part of that is expectation. They expect because I'm doing this once a day for 20 minutes or, you know, whatever it is that it should be better. What they don't understand is it's at times it can come back in a few days. It can come back in a few weeks. It can come back in a few months. It can come back in a few years, but there's no time frame. Each one of us is different. It depends on what you put into it sometimes. Sometimes it's the therapy, the therapist showing you how to do it right. Sometimes it's whatever it is, but but there needs to be more out there so people understand this. And that goes yes. along with advocating and what can patients do and uh, the, the survivor do and, and different things like that. Um, because... I know that when I had my stroke, I know now what I didn't understand then that I would say no to something when the answer should have been yes or, or vice versa or whatever it was. 
but if they just asked me that one more question, but they don't understand that. They don't understand that the answer is no. But then if they said the next question to question that, the answer would be different because there's another little component in there. So I went Mm -hmm. through all of this saying, yes, 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 (laughs) or no, 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 (laughs) you know, because at one point they did. So they asked me, and I remember this, and I don't know why I answered the way I did. They said, did you turn your head or something, you know, really fast? And I said, or or it was something like that. And I said, no, well, I had. Mm. but I couldn't, I, I don't know. But later on, I, I was looking back at that and wondering why I answered no. Well, it was because I think they didn't give me enough time to process what they were asking. And then like 20 minutes later, I realized, oh, I did turn my head, but what would that have to do with anything? You know, and that's when everything had started. So mm. I, but, but there, there needed to be that one more question or questioning the answer, you know, before they dismissed it. But because I said whatever, and because I was young and because I didn't have any factors of stroke, we didn't go on. But there were a lot of questions like this over the next, I don't know, a couple of years that Mm. I needed more. So anyway, I think I just got off target, but no, I I think what you're saying is really valid and valuable because We, I was just reading a study, an article from the Stroke Journal that's put up by the American Heart Association. And it was a qualitative study looking at the level of motivation in stroke survivors, because therapists often use that as a way to gauge how people are participating, right? But what they found, interestingly enough, was that often people who had high motivation had more education from their medical team and therapists around what happened with their stroke, why they're asking them to do what they need them to do, and that people with lower motivation had been provided with less education around what was going on with their body and to manage those expectations of recovery. Um, Maybe they didn't realize that the timeline for stroke recovery is different for everyone. And, you know, you can, you know, you can still make recovery years later um, because of the beautiful neuroplasticity. So, and this is huge. So I need you to say that again. Okay. uh, (laughs) Yeah. And I just forgot what it was, but many people are told you have, you know, you'll make progress for a year. That's it. I have time again, because I also run a stroke support group. Yes. People in a meeting with the therapists, because I I also would go and talk to them and the therapists would say that. And so when they got up and I would say, I'm five years out, I'm still making progress. I'm six years out. I'm still making progress. I'm seven years out. And now I'm eight and a half years out and I'm still making progress. Um, Yes. Daniel and I interviewed a guy who was told after a year he wouldn't make any progress. I think his his problem was his hand uh, opening mm-hmm. and closing and not doing anything. But 
he got a new physician at some point and that physician started doing different therapy with him. Could use his hand again. 25 years later. Wow. He had gotten yes. it in the beginning or, or kept go, but because he was told, eh, you're done. Mm. He try. And he didn't sure. trying. So yeah. that's what I was trying to point out. That if yes, if you don't work it, you lose it. And I can also yes. myself attest to that because I had a two-story house. We sold it, moved into my husband's home, which was a ranch with no basement or anything. And I didn't do stairs. Guys, and then for whatever reason, I bought a house that has stairs going up into the front door. And I bought, it has stairs going up to our bedroom. And I didn't realize I wasn't using those. I mean, because I was still working out and exercising the best I could. I'd lost it. It it took Mm -hmm. me a while to be able to do the stairs. And I think I told you that I'm working with a personal trainer. So I'm going up the stairs and starting the down stairs uh, thing like a normal person. It doesn't look good, but it's it's getting better. I see each week, but because I didn't do it, I lost that ability. So you have to continue exercising your whole body so that you don't lose it even if it's a you know your hand and you're cooking and you're doing stuff you still need to do that extra exercise you know whether it's the stress ball or a weight or whatever it is because you will lose it I and I can truly attest to that but also I can also attest to that if you keep working baby steps it may, you may not see the results immediately. You may not see the results for a long time, but I've had people tell me you're walking better. You're, you know, mm. your balance is better. You're, and I don't see it, but they have, because they don't see me every day or every week or whatever it is. So you have to keep working. I'll go back and clear up that timeline thing that we were talking about, because there, it, you know, I told you before, I'm a research nerd, but here's the thing. You have to balance research with anecdotal evidence as well. So the research shows us optimal, quickest return after a stroke happens in the first three to six months. But you can't live by that. Sure, that, that, that has been based on some different studies. But because we learn more about the brain and we're continuing to learn so much more about the brain and about neuroplasticity and how that functions and how that works, we know because our brain is plastic and it's able to change over time that you're not limited to that time frame. You're not limited to a year. You're not limited to a year and a half. You're not limited to 25 years. What you just said was the important piece, though, is if you stop trying, you will lose it because what happens after a stroke and a lot of you probably already know this. So I'm sorry if I'm explaining something that everybody already knows, but, you know, you have brain cell death in a certain area. And so what happens, you, your brain has to kind of reroute directions. I posted a 
quick tip on some of the Facebook groups the other day, kind of giving this analogy of taking a train to work and that you have to switch trains, but the second train is out of commission. So you have to kind of route around and find a different route to your work. Your brain is kind of like that out of commission train car after you've had a stroke, that one area. And so you have to, it has to find these other ways to route around to make those neural connections from the brain to whatever part of the body that you're trying to move again. And there are certain principles of neuroplasticity that you can use, like you just said, use it or lose it, Mm -hmm. use it to improve it. So it's not just to get it back again, but how can you make it better? Keep using it. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Do something that's relevant to you. Relevance is really, really important. You know, that's, and that's the thing that I try to always bring into my own therapy sessions is no person is the exact same. We all have different things that we like, that we dislike things, different things that we do. And so therapy has to be individually tailored because if it's not, it's not going to be as effective. So you have to find those things that are really important to you and figure out ways to integrate those into your recovery and your rehab, whether you're still working in therapy or you're trying to do it on your own. I love what you said too, about that sometimes you don't see those small changes that are happening, but you you get validated because someone will say, oh, I noticed that you're walking better or your balance is a little bit better. One of the people that I'm working with right now said, is someone that he had been seeing said, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're able to actually lift your arm up a little bit better. It's nice to have those moments when maybe you're not seeing that progress and it can be easy to feel disheartened or feel like you might be hitting a plateau, but then someone says, oh, wait, like, no, I can see that something is changing. And you are, even though you're, you may not be seeing those small incremental changes, every time that you practice something and that you're trying something with, you know, if you have your affected side that you're, maybe you're working on opening up your hand a little bit better, and maybe you're working to pour yourself a bowl of cereal and grabbing onto the cereal box. Every time that you try to do that and hold the box, pour the cereal out, put the box back on the table, you are rewiring your brain. So I think I love everything that you said. I, it is so important. Use it or lose it. Use it to improve it. Repetition. Do something important to you. Right. So one of the things we're working on now with the personal trainer, he gives me like exercises that work the, well, I guess any exercise works the brain, but he gives me like three steps and, and things like this. And I mean, I go home tired. I go home with brain fog. I now when he doesn't work me like that, I just go home and I'm fine. I'm, I'm still tired. But when he gives me command, like he started me with kickboxing, like guys, I didn't ever think I could do kickboxing. So it's like, I have to lift my leg, bend my knee, kick out, then bring the knee back into the position and then down that you don't think that that's a lot of thought and and a lot of thinking, but it is. And Mm -hmm. I seriously go home with brain fog. And those of you who understand brain fog or what it is will understand that from doing maybe something else. But he tries to do this. And I'm like, don't, let's just do something easier. And he goes, no. And he's a TBI survivor times two. 
And he goes, that means I'm doing my job. Yeah. He is working all these things, not only your mind and your body, but we're rerouting, which is what we're talking about too. Eight years later, eight and a half years later, I'm doing so much better. I mean, I can see that from where I was. There's still a whole heck of a long way to go, you know, with the brain. Even if it's just like you said, grabbing the cereal box, think about how you're grabbing it. Are you reaching your arm out? Are you clamping your fingers? Are you putting it on the counter, lifting it down, whatever it is? You're working. Mm -hmm. Even if it's something simple like that, you just don't realize that that's all in there, I guess you could say. So I want to thank everybody for listening. I want you to know we're going to do a part two um, with Elise and um, maybe there'll be a part three because this is so, this is like a huge challenge for stroke survivors and their families. And our conversation, we went over what we, in time over what we normally would do. So we do want to bring a part two and continue on this journey because there's so much information and there's, there's just so much we, I think we both need to say. So anyway, Elise, I want to thank you for being with us today. Um, I look forward to part two and I'm sure our listeners do too. So I'm going to say goodbye, but we, Elise and I will see you on the radio. As I always say at the end on stroke focus, and this is the hand in hand show. So good night. Thank you.